Hi, this is Megan McHugh, and this is the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website. G'day, welcome aboard the Starship Zero G, science fiction, fantasy and historical radio for episode number 1419. I am Rob Jan and our co-host Megan McHugh is leading a foraging party out into the wastelands today. And so that means that I will be talking at you for the next hour. Always subjective or objective, depends on how you roll. Our title is Everybody Run. The homie coming queen's got a pun. And actually, it's me with the pun. And Tar, very much for allowing me to get that one out of my system. I got one more. Our podcast title is Da Potty. Because we are talking about, well, I journeyed off to the actual cinema to see that other movie set in an African kingdom featuring a king's elite all-female royal guard whose central theme revolves around repelling colonisers from the sea. So no, it's not Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, but another movie with not entirely coincidental resonance to that latest Marvel entry, which is to say the film under discussion today is The Woman King. (laughs) So you heard a track there right up the top of the show, a traditional Benin song from the soundtrack of that and... Terence Blanchard is the composer of the soundtrack, but in that case, we had a number of other artists interpreting that song there for the film. And of course, they have used a lot of indigenous music for the soundtrack of TWK. Now, the Black Panther movies do feature an all-female royal guard, and in this case... That's in Wakanda. But, so, they were actually inspired by the Agoji, which is a similar unit, though less fictional. And that's in the movie that we're talking about today, The Woman King, which is directed by Gina Prince Bythewood, who's a US-American film director slash screenwriter. And boy, does she do a lot of slashing in this film in terms of cut and thrust and spearing because it is an action-adventure movie, a period movie set back in the 19th century. Sorry, the 18th century. Well, hang on a minute. Let me just do the numbers on this. Nope, 19th century. And, uh, well, Prince Bythewood is known for movies like Love and Basketball in the year 2000, which has now become a bit of a cult classic of sports, romance, dramas. And that kind of informs this movie too. She's an athlete because that movie is a little bit um, uh, biographical. So she is a sportsman person. So that does inspire some of the action in this film. Uh, She did Disappearing Acts in 2000 and The Secret Life of Bees in 2008. Uh, The screenplay for Before I Fall in 2010, which is kind of a 
little bit of a fantasy thriller where a girl has to relive the day of her death once each day for a week. Uh, Beyond the Lights in 2014. And the movie, I think, is probably most relevant to The Woman King's cut of its jib, or the cut of its jab, actually, in this case, The Old Guard in 2020. Remember that one? We talked about that on Zero G. Uh, It's a Netflix film. And it starred Charlize Theron as an immortal mercenary. So, yeah, there's a lot to do with that. And several of the production crew, etc., have worked on the old guard, have transferred over to The Woman King, which she actually pitched to its star, uh, Viola Davis, at an awards ceremony. And all of the, um, <coughs> the people who were watching the ceremony all gave her a bit of a clap when they... Um, when she was doing a pitch and, uh, and Viola said, yeah, that sounds really good, basically. So <clears throat> what do we take away from the director's CV? Well, you know, she knows how to handle teen drama and romance. Uh, she is partial to having very strong older women in the roles. Um, she deals well with movies that feature people of colour. And she's also sportsman too, which gives a lead into the action. So that's Gina Prince-Bythewood, the director of this new film, The Woman King. The writer is Dana Stevens, who worked on Blink in 1993, which was a neo-noir thriller and was co-creator of a comedy drama series under the wing of J.J. Abrams' uh, Bad Robot production company, What About Brian, that was called, and a few other items which lead into this particular story. Now, I'll give you another track right up here, and it's called the Agoji It's War, and it's by Jabu Shirinda and the South African Choir. Yeah, and we are talking about The Woman King, a new movie which I have gotten off to the theatre to actually see in, well, you call it real life? I don't know. It's a cinema. It's um, all a bit magical. And this is not a magical film in terms of magic realism or any of that. It is a straightforward historical action movie in the vein of, throw a few titles that the director was referencing, uh, Braveheart, Gladiator, Last of the Mohicans and so on. It's actually a way better film than Braveheart is, but uh, nevertheless, it is a fine... What would you call it? Uh, I was going to call it Swords and Sandal, but you can't really do that. That's like Roman Empire or um, Ancient Greek or that kind of thing. And besides, they don't wear sandals, <laughs> the unit in this. And the they are the all-female elite guard force of the king of Dahomey, D-A-H-O-M-E-Y, which is kind of maps onto where uh, present-day Benin is in West Africa, more or less. Uh, don't hold me too much to the geography of it. Although the interesting thing about this one is it's basically filmed in Africa, you know, lots of South Africa studios and that kind of thing, but also a few other places around there that they managed to get into to do this amazing film, which features the Dora Milaje. No, 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 that's the Black Panthers Royal Guard. This is the Agoji, and the track we just heard there was actually from the soundtrack album, and it was Agoji, It's a War by Jabu Chiranda and the South African Choir. 
So what do you get in this movie? Let's unpack the plot of this. The Kingdom of Dahomey, it's under the thumb of the Oyo Empire, which is another West African kingdom of the times in the 19th century, uh, which now would include bits of Benin and Western Nigeria. Uh, They, as well as Dahomey, and this is actually kind of nuanced and complex, um, they also provide African slaves to white slave traders, in this case uh, Portuguese from Brazil, uh, amongst others. And it actually has been kind of the foundation of the particular era's uh, economy in the kingdom of Dahomey, which is a, a vile thing and not to the good of anyone except perhaps for the king and his retinue and the uh, the nobles, but it has actually managed to empower the kingdom a bit. And mostly they have been, and this doesn't excuse it, but mostly they've been raiding other countries and going to war with other kingdoms in order to provide slaves. Not always selling their own people. I don't know. You know, the the, the, the morals of that and the ethics, there's, there's no real nuance in that. You're making slaves of human beings. It's not a good thing. They do get into that in the story, although they are taking pains to make the uh, the Dahomey cause more of the, the hero cause in this story. Although I put quotation marks on that too because I'm only reading this from a fairly shallow basis of having read a couple of articles on Wikipedia and so on. I haven't had a chance to delve deeper into the actual history of the place. And actually, in this case, I would trust the director and the screenwriter to do a lot more research than I've been able to do in a brief time. So I think uh, I might go with them. They were saying in articles that I read that um, some of the history has been told by colonisers because Dahomey ended up being part of uh, the French Empire after the this story takes place. It's not alluded to in, in the story or in it after credits or anything like that, but that's what happens in history. And uh, a lot of the history was written by colonisers and is certainly suspect. So I'm going to assume for now, until otherwise informed, that the director and the screenwriter knew what they were doing in terms of um, putting in the nuance in that. I have no reason not to believe it. So, okay, Um, and the Oyo Empire has actually been... Uh, doing raids upon uh, Dahomey villages and stealing women and other people um, associated with uh, manual labour and people who would uh, work well as slaves, presumably in other countries. In this case, it's um, not a good thing for the Dahomey king. He's quite annoyed at it, and so he sends his uh, agoji, his elite female guard, off to do some raiding to try and retrieve some of their citizens. And so basically the story starts out with a raid on an Oyo village to liberate some Dahomey citizens and bring them back to home, as it were. And General Nansika, played by Viola Davis, is the leader of this force of formidable troopers, Now, Viola Davis we have seen before, uh, most prominently, I would say, in the West, in um, Amanda, uh, playing the character of Amanda Waller in Suicide Squad and other DC productions. 
she's also been uh, Michelle Obama in the First Lady television series and the eponymous character, not body part, in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, where she also was playing opposite uh, Chadwick Boseman. And she was also uh, playing an officer, I think, way back in the Ender's Game movie. Um, And I first encountered her in the United States of Tara. So she's been around a fairly long while. And my God, has she seriously muscled up for this role. And also brings a no-nonsense attitude to match. Now... A long time ago, I used to do some um, sword and shield work with the um, Society for Creative Anachronism and saw all manner of people that I really didn't want to fight coming at me through the visor of a metal helmet. General Nansica would be one of those people and possibly six of those people. If if I were um, opposing her in a fight, I'd be likely to say, you six men, you take her on, <laughs> you, you attack her. Or actually maybe that entire platoon because she is a force of nature in this uh, just as much as um, any of the other male action heroes from these sorts of uh, swords and spear movies of the time. So she is a new action star in this and I would love to see a sequel to this too. And it just makes me full of uh, joy to see the fact that this is now kind of a little bit inspired by the success of the first Black Panther movie, at least in uh, monetary terms, I guess it freed up a bit of money to uh, make a kind of a, a sister film in so, in some ways. Nantica is, as I said, no nonsense and she is one tough general, but she has also got some interesting facets to her character, uh, including some relationships which I won't go into here because it'll spoil part of the film and also her interesting and complex relationship with the king of Dahomey. Now this is a strange sort of setup where they've got two gods, a male god and a female god, who in the past were sort of like the uh, the king and queen figure. They don't actually have a queen figure at the moment but they're trying to uh, organise one, one of the king's wives. So there's a little bit of political subplot there in tension. Now, the king is played, King Gezo of Dahomey, has just sort of um, become king and uh, his father was more into the slave trade than he was uh, using it to empower the nation's coffers and the royal coffers in particular. Uh, Gezo's um, open to other modes of financing the kingdom, such as uh, growing palm oil. Or, or sorry, not growing palm oil, but um, uh, refining palm oil and, uh, and and using that as a, a possible income. Now, King Gezo is played by John Bodega, who of course was Stormtrooper Finn, later Rebel Finn in the Star Wars sequels. He's also apparently up for um, Joe Cornish's sequel to Attack the Block, which is where I first saw him. And he does indeed play quite a nuanced character in this too. In fact, nuance is what this film is all about playing riffs upon some standard trope characters that we've seen before in these kinds of period action movies. And he does a good job of that, and his relationship with Nansiko is quite a thing to watch. Hi, I'm Jannie Wirtz, fantasy author and artist, and whether you walk in the shadows or the light, you're listening to Zero G on 3 Triple R. Now, we've covered the two of the main characters from The Woman King, uh, Violet Davis's 
General Nansika and also John Bodega's King Gezo of the Kingdom of Dahomey in West Africa. Now, the other characters in this who are of considerable note is Recruit Trooper Nawi and played by Thuso Mbedu, a South African actress. And this is her film debut. Um, she is a, a young woman and she's done a bit of television over in South Africa. And in this, she is the... I hesitate to call her the Mulan stand-in but um, because she's certainly not um, hiding her gender in this film, although she has had a fairly awful life uh, coming from a family where her outspoken and innovative personality has not stood her in good stead. In fact, uh, she has been reluctant to be betrothed to any of the people that her family felt she was suitable to be betrothed to, and fair enough too, which means that she gets dumped at the royal compound as an unwanted daughter and told to <laughs> pretty much go and enlist in the Agochi elite female king's guard, which she does, <laughs> and she is rapidly taken under the wing of an officer, or perhaps an uncommissioned officer, Izoki, played by Lashan Lynch. And we've seen her before playing uh, Maria Rambo um, in the Captain Marvel and the Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness movie. She was playing a uh, multidimensional variant in the Multiverse of Madness. And, of course, she was Nomi, the MI6 agent in No Time to Die. And if you happen to watch British science fiction comedy, you'll also know her from the intergalactic adventures of Max Cloud. So Naoi and Izogi have a lot to do with each other as trainer and trainee. And yes, there are montage sequences in this of training montages. There's even one on the soundtrack. <laughs> just called that so you know exactly how long that training montage lasts. It's a couple of minutes. Uh, but actually, they don't just lightly touch upon that. I think the uh, the director's sports and attitude, uh, Gina Prince-Bythewood, has filtered through to this. So she knows what it takes to train up to do things, although perhaps less mayhem in the basketball arena that she is more accustomed to as director and as sportswoman herself. So the Agoji, their training is something fierce. It's pretty much like... Uh, Train very, very hard indeed, and it will make the fighting easier. Well, that's the theory anyway, and it stood many armies in good stead over the ages. Perhaps it just means that your uh, NCOs get to be a bit shouty and uh, <laughs> and brutal to your troopers. Uh, one of the things that they do is, um, you know, it's like their uh, graduation after, uh, after boot camp, uh, and they don't wear boots either. They're all barefooted. Um, they have to run through what I think, if memory serves me, is called a donga, and that is a fence constructed entirely of three or four-inch thorn bushes. Um, the thorns are that long, actually, not the bushes. Bushes are much, much bigger, and they have to crawl through this. <laughs> it's basically like uh, barbed wire. And 
oh, you look at that and you think, yeah, you'd have to be pretty tough and motivated to do that kind of thing. So there's a lot of that in this film, you know, as they train them to use everything from swords to spears, uh, short sort of spears, and also bits of string. Well, actually little ropes, sort of like lariats. Uh, and actually that's all quite well worked out in this. Um, and I thought, yeah, all right, that makes entirely good sense. And our young woman, our, uh, our trainee, uh, Nawi, is an innovator as well. She plays some interesting tricks with gunpowder because this is an era where they do actually have muskets as well and obviously they've been traded them from uh, some of the, uh, the white slave traders have been uh, supplying them with firearms too. So they actually are trained in that as well. So, okay, that's three of the main people. Uh, Nawi has the usual uh, sidekicks, a couple of recruits who have their own ways and means of behaving. So you know that rather like Mulan, that's going to create a little unit of people to uh, go on with throughout the film. And they're all solid. They do, do the job that they're supposed to do. Now let's turn to some of the villains in this film. Uh, Santo Ferreira plays, uh, sorry, is the character, he's a captain in, um, of the Portuguese uh, slavers. Seems like a reasonably decent chap at first. He's played by huh, Hero Finds Tiffin, who we know as young Voldemort in some of the Harry Potter films. Um, but he's not really going to win many hearts and minds in this story because he is actually a slaver. And he does have a, a sort of a congenial relationship with the king based upon the king's father's relationship with the slavers, but the new king, Gezo, is not quite as tolerant of his ways as his dad was. Jimmy Odukoya plays General Oba, He's the leader of the troops of the Oya Empire, the opposition to the Dahomies. Uh, he's a Nigerian actor. I haven't seen anything that he's been in before, but he has impressive physicality. Reminds me a bit of uh, Mubaku from the Black Panther movies. Uh, he is built, and he's not too nuanced in his character, uh, this is one of the problems of the film. Not a big problem, really. But, uh, you know, you might take note of that. We'll get back to that a little bit later. Now, bridging the gap between villains and heroes is a character called uh, Malik, who is half Dahomey and half Portuguese. Um, his mother was taken as a slave back to Brazil. And he has tried to fulfil his mother's dying wish by coming back to the country of her birth to see what's what. He's a bit of a love interest for one of the characters and it's kind of refreshing. It's like he's a little bit like uh, Chris Pine's character in the Wonder Woman movies, like sort of off to one side there. Definitely like second to the female characters, which is good because that's what this movie is about, the Agochi, the elite female warriors. So... Uh, he is played by, Malik is played by Jordan Bolger, who we've seen before in Peaky Blinders, and also as a cyborg in the book of Boba Fett. <laughs> so I don't know if that's given him any insight into the character here, but here he is. And he's quite uh, handsome in that sort of leading man kind of way. And it's interesting to see how that works out in this movie. It doesn't play out in the cliched way that it could do. 
Well, Nawi as a new recruit is our way in to the story and into the Agoji unit. So we kind of see through her eyes how it's going to roll. Uh, and as I said, not entirely in Milan territory and not entirely in Gladiator Surf. It is its own movie. There is an enormous number of combat scenes. This movie literally lives and dies by those. Uh, lots of twirling and jumping with that spear. Very athletic. It's not always the best use for a spear, I think, in terms of you know the actual way you'd want to use it. But there is actually some interesting stuff that I've read about um, uh, the Zulu Asigi, the short spear sword that they used. It's a very long-bladed one. This is not quite like that. But I can see how they could use it possibly also as a cutting weapon too. This is very technical. And what do I really know about it? You know, not all that much. But, you know, I'm just observing this as I went along. But it sure does look very cinematic. But you could probably do some critical thought about that. Uh, Just when I thought they were going to fall into the cliché of everybody sort of fights one-on-one, you know... Uh, I'm just thinking that as I'm watching the food movie and then suddenly some of the Agoji start cooperating as small teams, as soldiers are what to do. That's the whole point. Otherwise, you're just a bunch of warriors. And that actually did look quite convincing and they'd taken time to choreograph the gags, which is to say work out how the people were going to help each other and that made a lot of sense and I gave them a lot of marks for doing that. And the marks go to the people who worked on the fight choreography and the stunt coordination. Um, one of them is uh, Janelle Stevens, who's a basically a, a trainer who put them the cast through the horrific training that they had to do. You know, hours of weight training each day and also uh, fight training as well after that. So yeah, they really took their lumps in this one. And she's worked before on the Black Panther first movie and the Grey Man. Remember that. Um, one we were talking about a while back on Zero Two, uh, Ms. Marvel, the series, and Falcon and the Winter Soldier. And she's also teamed up with um, uh, stunt coordinator, fight coordinator, uh, Daniel Hernandez, who has worked on Avengers and Avengers Endgame and Infinity Wars and Thor Ragnarok and a whole bunch of other Marvel properties, but also comes from the old guard worked on that too and also a series which you may have seen uh, streaming series Shadow and Bone as well as John Wick so they actually put together a very convincing package in terms of the action of this film and as I said you would not want any of these people marching towards you or running towards you in deadly earnest because it is frightening and the cinematography takes full advantage of that several times in the movie Now, there's a few things in this movie I could call. Um, There is a twist in it that's not particularly original, but I still give them points for it because it fits in with relatively good grace in the story. I don't sit there going, oh, come on. They do actually plant it in and work it into the plot, and you think, yeah, all right, I'll buy that in this case. Uh, The villains can be a bit um, straw-man-y, you know, Uh, not very dimensional. Uh, and their motivations are pretty much, you know, they're slave traders and they, uh, some, there's a, a small smattering of misogyny uh, established at the start uh, before they go on to greater misogyny throughout the movie. Um, so, as I said, a bit straw, straw man type. Uh, 
Uh, actually, literally, sometimes that is they use straw mannequins in the training of the agogi. Um, so I thought that might that stood them in a little bit uh, bad stead in the film, because you measure your heroes by the height of your villains. So you know it can help them push push the, uh, the heroes up as well. Um, on another side here, not a bad thing. The costumes were great. I thought the woven leather torso armor, the agogi sport. Looked pretty decent. Um, you know, it's not European-grade steel plate or anything like that or scale or mail or anything like that, but um, it is light enough and perhaps if it's been uh, made from boiled leather or something like that, um, it would actually give you quite a bit of protection, especially worn over the heavy cloth tunics that they have. And I like that because quite often they omit to wear any padding underneath armour. And it just seemed to be logical that it would... Uh, be the kind of thing that they would be wearing in this particular nation. Oh, it's something that I did notice the um, the uh, the royal women are wearing peacock feathers woven into their eyelashes and eyebrows. I thought it was just some sort of exotic eye paint, and then I got a close look at it on the screen. I thought that's really cool. I like that. They also use shells as decorations of honor and rank amongst the agogi, and and that all made sense too. Uh, the sets are brilliantly done. You know the um, Adobe sort of uh, uh, palace, and uh, it's a real city. The um, uh, the Dahomey capital. It's it's way beyond what you normally see in these sorts of movies, and I pay them that they've actually taken the time to set all of this up and and create this all because it just takes you out of the cliche of of uh, the usual Western movies set in Africa. You know, Zulu or Zulu Dawn, as good as those films actually are, and as they actually were quite. Um, progressive in their times in some aspects of the, uh, the filmmaking. Uh, in fact, the, um, the opposing uh, sides in that uh, are equally well represented in those films. Nevertheless, this is its own film, and I commend it to you. If you like a good action-adventure movie set in uh, historical times, uh, if you want to see more of African culture where the creators of the film are trying to be anti-colonisation and provide you with a bit more authentic insight into the culture, this is the film. It's The Woman King and I give it a, if I can uh, pronounce it correctly in terms of the zero G, yeah, nah, maybe rated, definitely a yeah, or as they would say, a go G. I can't do it the way they did it, but by God, it sent a chill up my spine when I was watching it. And it's on at the cinema at the moment. Been on for a few weeks, so you might want to hop along to see it before it uh, disappears. All right, let's have a, a song by a, a known white man and a colonizer and in many respects a cultural colonizer. But, you know, this is our weekly Bowie, so I thought I'd play this song. It's from the Lodger album African Night Flight, and it's really re- referencing... Um, Uh, grizzled old German pilots in Africa kicking around in bars and uh, flying out across the veldt to do assorted things. It's sort of this uh, expatriate community possibly left over from World War II and um, other German colonial adventures in Africa. But, you know, it's David Bowie, so I thought I'd give it a shot. African night flight from his Lodger album. Where did I get this one from? I don't think it's actually from the lodger itself no well actually it is it's a 2017 remaster 
Hmm. Broadcast mode. This is Crichton, the service android aboard the Starship Zero-G on 3 Triple R FM. SOS! SOS! Mayday! Help! I am being held captive by rogue makeup artists who want to cover my face in plaster and latex rubber. Panic mode. Get me the hell out of here! Yeah, we will do that, but not quite yet. Mr. Bowie there with African Night Flight from the Lodger album. Well, that's a 2017 remastered version. Now, the other day I was looking over a note of mine that said, I need a new sitcom to watch. And I think um, this was a note from, oh, it must have been about 2016, and um, I was uh, lamenting the end of 30 Rock, I think it was. Since then, I've actually found quite a few other sitcoms that have gone under my bridge. Uh, Schmigadoon, the musical one. Um, also, uh, uh, Avenue 5, the science fiction space comedy, another Brit one there. And um, is that a British one? Actually, I think it is. I could be wrong there. Um, which actually has just dropped some new episodes. And, of course, Mythic Quest, which uh, co-host Megan McHugh put me on to. To my, my delight, it is an incredible show. It's had two seasons, uh, switched networks, um, and it's just uh, dropped its third season on Amazon Prime, Mythic Quest, season three. Huzzah! It is set in uh, the office of a game called Mythic Quest, and I'm actually surprised that there isn't one... Uh, an online game or a, or a uh, platform game that's actually called that because it seems to be obvious to me. We've seen it all in the first and second season. The third season, well, it's a year later after that and the uh, two mainstays of the Mythic Quest development team, Poppy and Ion, have moved on to create their own game called Hera. So they've left the Mythic Quest stable. And, you know, we... Picking up a year later, seeing how they're all going, basically. I'm not going to go into this too much because I want to chat with Megan about it. So I'm not going to give you any, too many spoilers about it. Um, some of the characters have moved on, one in particular. and You do feel the loss of that character. Um, it's uh, something that you think, well, oh, I wish he'd been here for another season. But they have gone on to bigger and better things, I suppose. Um we catch up with everybody else, Ion and Poppy, still as crazed as ever our, our two um, testers, the two uh, gamers who play Mythic Quest professionally for the company. Um, they're still, they're not actually doing that anymore. They've moved on themselves, but we do get to touch base with them. And they will be included in this season for other reasons which will become apparent as you go on. Uh, Joe, who used to be Brad's assistant, has migrated over to being David's assistant. David is now in charge of Mythic Quest, basically the uh, the whole team. Uh, he's not doing too well with it. He's kind of, as he says, he's doing the hokey pokey, which means he, he does a lot of dancing around and, uh, and jumping and all that sort of stuff. But um, he's not actually achieving much she's just staying in the same place uh, moving his legs up and down and waving his arms around which becomes increasingly obvious as the two episodes that have dropped proceed but that actually forms its own little plot device too 
Uh, Carol, who used to be in HR, is now in charge of diversity and inclusiveness. And again, she's getting a big salary and not doing a whole lot for it, and that's quite frustrating for her. She gets an epic rant in this new season that was just absolutely spot on, showing the sparkling wit and repartee that is the characteristic signature dialogical tune for Mythic Quest. We also get a little bit more from uh, Jo, uh, mentioning her before in her full evil mode. She has such a study in villainy. You watch the expressions play across her Trumpy pro-Republican face as she gets into the epic villainy that she is known for. She's trying to be better, but uh, I don't think she's trying very hard. And, of course, Brad, who went to prison um, in the uh, the end of the last season, now has come back uh, on a rather humble sort of level, but nevertheless still an important one. And you have to wonder what game he is playing, because when it comes to evil, he is Joe's... Sith Lord. <laughs> uh, they have a, a great way of uh, facilitating the strangeness of the hero game and the mythic quest game. How are they going to get characters and people interacting from uh, between the two companies? Well, they solve that in a pretty neat way, which actually made me laugh out loud when I was watching the show. And they are now calling uh, Poppy and Ion working together Grim Pop. Oh, dear. (laughs) So, yeah, two new episodes drop now. I think the third one drops on Friday on Amazon Prime TV. So well worth watching. One of the standout genre comedies of all time. I easily put it in my top ten genre comedies. Uh, And further than that, just playing comedies. Um, I really enjoy Mythic Quest. And we've got a track here from the Takeshi Furukawa's Mythic Quest Seasons 1 and 2 album, the main titles for the show. In the marmalade forest, forest. Between the make-believe trees G'day, I'm Brett McKenzie I played an in elf from Lord of the Rings My dad played Ellen Dole the King You're listening to Zero G on 3 Triple R, And I have one thing to say My name is Figwit the Elf You killed my father, prepare to die Yeah, Takeshi Furukawa's Mythic Quest's main title So stoked that it's back on telly at the moment Now, we were looking at the Woman King to start with on today's show. And I did think that um, I did say I was going to tell you about Terence Blanchard's music, but there's not much more to tell, apart from the fact that the composer did The Five Bloods and Black Klansman's the soundtracks for those and even worked on Malcolm X, so has been around for quite some time. And I think he's did a sterling job on the soundtrack for The Woman King. I think I said, I'm going to talk about that later on, and now I have. So there you go, promise kept. Oh, actually, if you are tuning in to Zero G this week on the expectation of me having an interview with comic book creator and maestro Tom Taylor, I apologise that I got the dates wrong for that. So that will be upcoming in future. All right, 
But that does not stop you from going out and checking his great work for DC Comics at the moment or indeed his new book, Neverlanders, or as I was doing on the train the other day, Superior Iron Man. Uh, Well, you can guess why I was looking at that, of all people. Uh, It actually made me miss my train because I was so engrossed in the comic book, I'm sort of off in that four-colour world and look up and the train's sitting there and then it goes beep, beep and goes off and I'm going, oh, wait, don't go. (laughs) Ah, well, if only I'd had the suit, I would have been fine for transport that day. Anyway, uh, another comic book creator I wanted to talk about today, sadly, Kevin O'Neill, the great English comic book artist, has died, uh, born on the 22nd of August 1953 and died on the 3rd of November this year. Very, very sad to hear that he is an institution in my comic book collection at least uh, and not least, of course, for his long-term collaboration with maestro Alan Moore with the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Uh, He also created Nemesis the Warlock and Martial Law, along with writer Pat Mills. Uh, Worked with IPC, so yeah, those staple British weekly illustrated magazines or comic books, if you want. Started at age 16 as an office boy for Buster, one of those children's humour titles, which I'm pretty sure probably did get a... Guernsey in the pastiche, the glorious pastiche that is the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen at one stage. And he started doing his own publishing about um, uh, film and television special effects and worked as a colourist on Disney comic reprints. I don't know if you you probably do know that or maybe you don't know that, but um, uh, in England and in Australia too, we were reprinting overseas comics here for quite some time, still do, and some very limited circumstances and that meant that you would get uh, like Marvel comics uh, here and DC comics and so on Uh, and you had to have a publishing house here that could actually um, work on them too. So all good fun back in the day and one of my ways into comic books actually into the world of Marvel and DC. Uh, His other titles include uh, Wizard and Chips. Oh gosh, I remember that one. And eventually he went to work on 2000 AD. Yes, that that uh, riveted staple of British science fiction comics. And yeah, of course, he worked on doing pin-ups and covers for that and created the image of Tharg. Remember Tharg the Mighty? <laughs> uh, did the cover on the cover of the first issue of 2000 AD. So, yeah, all of those Tharg the Mighty bits and pieces, he worked on those. Of course, other people did. Uh, but he worked on Robusters as well. Uh, again, Pat Mills there as the writer. Ah, oh, gosh, I love Robusters. Sort of a, a cybernetic international rescue. Um, not that far from the digital version that Weta Workshop does now. So they've got a robot on that too. Um, you know, so, you know, there's all sorts of stuff in there. Nemesis the Warlock is probably... Um, one of the uh, the biggest ones that he did, um, working again with uh, Mills, um, the uh, featuring the uh, the villainous Torquemada and um, Nemesis in that. What a strange story that is! A lot of people had a lot of evil fun with 
that particular strip and indeed uh, graphic novels that they put together over the years. And it was um, probably just about as uh, popular as Judge Dredd for a time in 2000 AD and, of course, got him into lots of trouble with um, the censors who thought it was all very, very dark and evil. And they were right. (laughs) I do remember him doing... um, Work on Judge Dredd and ABC Warriors as well, which is the backstory to um, oh, the robot uh, Hammerstein in uh, Robusters. And you know when he went to to work with um, Kevin uh, with uh, Alan Moore, uh, you could see that they were a match made in some devious heaven or a particularly arcane hell because there's this sense of whimsy with the art in the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen that I thought particularly apt for the style of the comic book. And it wasn't just Alan Moore creating uh, the Easter eggs in the backgrounds of those wonderful two-page spreads and the little advertisements in the back of the comics. I've got some of the artwork here in front of me um, some of the Nemesis artwork here. Oh, God, that's lethal looking with the the characters in that with their long, long jaws and techno-organic armour that looks just as good in black and white as it did in colour too. And, of course, flipping over to the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, um, those pieces that he would do, I'm looking at one in particular of uh, Captain Nemo, the Indian science pirate with his disreputable crew, including Ishmael from Moby Dick. And, you know, he's really pulled out all the stops to create something that really highlights the pastiche nature of the story, which he was always doing, like every second page in the League comics and the graphic novels that followed on for it. And there's a, a beautiful, if I can use that term, horrific image of Mr Hyde, as in Dr Jekyll and Mr Hyde, in a tuxedo, smoking a cigar uh, with an oil lamp next to him, or possibly a candle lamp, I can't see it's under a cover, and there's a question mark of smoke curling up from it, and this is all in black and white, and it's just got such presence to it, always with the portraits in the background of other historical League of Extraordinary Gentlemen characters. And, you know, he was no slouch when it comes to the big-ticket items in this too. There's a a portrait, a battle scene of the Nautilus opening fire on Moriarty's dirigibles in a battle in London, or indeed when they brought the War of the Worlds characters into it, battling Martian fighting machines. And then I also look at the very delicate way that he would illustrate uh, characters like Mina Harker uh, as well as other female characters in the League. Of course, later on, jumping through time in the various League stories into the the 21st century, uh, a lot more, less delicate, uh, incorporating space-age, swinging 60s aesthetics into the 1960s one and then getting more futuristic and more, I think, 2000 AD style 
in later stories. So this is an artist with a broad, broad range, a large palette, and able to do all sorts of characters, but also focus in upon that uh, that Easter egg in pastiche that the League was very well known for. What a what a fine artist Kevin O'Neill was in in all of those senses of the word. He also worked on the martial law, which never really sort of gelled as a movie. I think they were trying to uh, get that up and running at uh, one stage, uh, but uh, hasn't quite gotten there. And, you know, look, I know that he managed to... The last League stuff that he did was uh, volume for The Tempest, uh, which is even more surreal and strange than any of the other ones. But he also has worked on... um, some uh, other pages which may come to light in due course. So that would be good to uh, to see if there's some uh, posthumous artwork that's still going to appear. Uh, yes, um, eight pages of comics for Alan Moore's Moon and Serpent Bumper Book of Magic um, and uh, cover illustration and design work according to what I'm reading here for the Cinema Purgatorio Collected Edition. So... It's nice to see that there's still some artwork from Kevin O'Neill that will appear sooner or later. So, yes, very sad to record his passing. Mr Kevin O'Neill, great artist. Now, we are going out with a track, which is a little bit trivial, I suppose, but um, it's uh, just comic books and it's by Blondie. (laughs) And I just thought, yeah, I kind of like this. And that's it for me. G'day, this is Rob Jan. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website.